I would like to read a few passages this evening in the New Testament. Um, I would like you first of all to turn in the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 24. <clears throat> I will read from verse 32. Now, from the fig tree, learn her parable. When her branches now become tender, and putteth forth its leaves, ye know that the summer is nigh. Even so ye also, when ye see all these things, know ye that he is nigh, even at the door. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be accomplished. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no one, not even the angels of heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. Verse 42. Watch therefore, for ye know not on what day your Lord cometh. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what watch the thief was coming, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken through. Therefore be ye also ready, for in an hour that ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Then if you will turn to Luke and chapter 13 and verse 6. And he spake this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit thereon and found none. And he said unto the vine dresser, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why doth it also cumber the ground? And he answering saith unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit thenceforth, well. But if not, thou shalt cut it down. And then finally, in the Gospel according to Mark, and chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Mark from verse 11. And he entered into Jerusalem into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, it being now eventide, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come out from Bethany, he hungered. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit from thee henceforward forever. And his disciples heard it. 
And they come to Jerusalem and he entered into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and them that bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold the doves. And he would not suffer that any man should carry a vessel through the temple. And he taught and said unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but ye have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and scribes heard it, and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And every evening he went forth out of the city, and as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, said unto him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou taken up and cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that what he saith cometh to pass. He shall have it. Therefore I say unto you, all things whatsoever ye pray and ask for, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. <clears throat> shall we just bow together in a further word of prayer? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be found here in thy presence. You know all our need, Lord. We're all a little weary from this long day and we need your reviving and renewing life and strength and together Lord we want to thank you that when we come to this word you can do something about the speaking of it and the hearing of it which will mean that your purpose for this time is fulfilled <clears throat> now dear Lord we just open our hearts to receive that anointing that is ours in the Lord Jesus Oh, dear Spirit of God, make it a, re a reality in the speaking of your word and in the hearing of it. And we shall give to you all the praise and all the glory, Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> I want to turn you to this word of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 and verse 32. Now from the fig tree learn her parable. When her branch is now become tender and putteth forth its leaves, ye know that the summer is nigh. Even so ye also, when ye see all these things, know ye that he is nigh even at the doors. This is the major discourse of the Lord Jesus on his return. And it has to be of very real significance that having enumerated a whole number of signs which would be the, um, uh, which would introduce the final phase of human history, but not be themselves the final phase, and then the sign which was the final phase, he then sums it all up by saying, now learn the parable of the fig tree. 
What did he mean? Did he mean, as some would have us believe, that Jesus was taking a very commonplace illustration of the fig tree putting forth its leaves, denoting that summer was coming? and that all these signs he had enumerated would be just like the fig tree putting forth its leaves, showing that the summer is coming. It is a very interesting thing in this connection uh, that um, the fig tree is not the real harbinger or herald of spring and summer in Israel. The real Herald of spring is the almond tree and it flowers in the first weeks of February and indeed it puts forth its blossom before its leaves. But when the almond tree flowers all over the hills and mountains of uh, Judea, we know that spring has begun. We have a couple of months really uh, before the hot, dry summer season <clears throat> is upon us. In fact, the interesting thing about the fig tree is that it's one of the last trees to put forth its leaves in the Holy Land. And when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, which it does, by the way, on some occasions within 24 hours, we know that the hot, dry summer season has either begun or is literally a couple of weeks away. So the Lord Jesus, in using this uh, illustration of the fig tree, would have been saying, when you see these signs all coming to pass, and especially the sign which he called the abomination of desolation, you must know, <clears throat> summer's upon you. It's not a month off, it's not six weeks off, it's not eight weeks off, it is literally a week or two at the most. That's why he said, know ye also, even so ye also, when you see all these things, know he is nigh even at the door not, as it were, somewhere on the outskirts of North London, but right here on the threshold of this building. That's how near he is. Not at the outskirts of the town or the city or even the village, but on the threshold of the house. He is nigh even at the door. <clears throat> But is this parable or lesson of the fig tree only an illustration that these signs, when we see them, are indicating to us that the coming of the Lord Jesus is almost upon us? Some would suggest that Luke, um, who is not afraid to substitute uh, uh, another phrase, in order to make things clearer, that Luke suggests this. In Luke chapter 21 and verse 20, Luke, when he records the words of the Messiah, 
um, saying, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to stand, and so on, he says, but when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that her desolation is at hand. And the first century church in Jerusalem had much to thank God for because of Luke's little commentary. Because in the year 66 AD, when they saw the Roman armies beginning to lay their encampments right round the city and throw up the siege wall, they all remembered the words of the Lord Jesus as recorded by Luke, and in a body they fled from the city. Even the Talmud makes uh, mention of it. They went down over the river Jordan and went to a place called Pella in the, at present in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And so they were totally preserved. If they had waited for the abomination of desolation to actually be standing where it ought not to stand, that is the day in 70 AD when Titus entered the temple and set up a standard of the Roman uh, emperor around the brazen altar and a statue of Jupiter on it, if they had waited for that, it would have been too late, for not a soul could get into the city or get out of the city. Now when uh, Luke records these words of the Lord Jesus, now from the fig tree, learn her parable. This is how he put it. And he spake to them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, ye see it, and know of your own selves that the summer is now nigh. Even so ye also, when ye see these things coming to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh. And they tell us that Luke was uh, implying or inferring that the Lord Jesus uh, was not in any way referring to the Jewish people when he said, now from the fig tree, learn the parable. It was all the trees. The fig tree, he used the word the fig tree. But, they say, Luke added the word, and all the trees, so that we should understand this is just a commonplace illustration taken from nature around us. But I think it is a very interesting thing that Luke did not just say, Now, behold all the trees. When, no, uh, when they now shoot forth, ye see it, and know of your own selves that summer is nigh. If he had said that and substituted that phrase for behold the fig tree, then I don't think there could be any discussion on this matter. It would have been abundantly clear that the Lord Jesus was not referring to a particular race or a particular nation in the earth when he said, now from the fig tree, learn its parable. But the fact is that Luke, who was a doctor and given to uh, uh, detail, says, behold all, behold the fig tree and all the trees, as if he was giving us the clue to the significance of the parable. It is twofold. First of all, it is a particular tree that will put forth its leaves. And secondly, it is something that is commonplace to all the trees. 
Now is that so? Certainly if we go into the Old Testament, we will discover a most interesting thing. We discover that the fig tree is a symbol in the Old Testament of national territory. Before ever it became a symbol of the nation itself, it was a symbol of national territory. Do you remember the little phrase that we get a number of times in the Old Testament? Every man shall sit under his own fig tree and vine. And we think, oh, what a lovely little poetic phrase that is. Every man shall sit under his own fig tree and vine. So beautiful. What a lovely picture. In the cool of the day, someone sitting under a fig tree and a vine which had woven its way into it somehow or another. But what did the word of God mean by using this phrase three or four times in the Old Testament? Surely it means this, that every single child of Israel will have an allotment of the soil of the territory of the promised land. An allotment of its, of its territory large enough to hold a fig tree and a vine. In other words, it was a symbol of the territory that God had given to his people. Later on, of course, it became a symbol of their fruitfulness. And I won't go into that. But it's quite clear that even the Lord Jesus used it in this way. For we have the record in Luke 13 of a parable which he told. And if nobody else understood, the Pharisees and scribes certainly understood who the Lord Jesus was getting at. He said a certain man had a vineyard, and in the vineyard he had a fig tree. And he came every year for three years looking for fruit on that tree and found none. And on the third year, he said to the tenant farmer, cut the thing down. It's exhausting the soil. And the tenant farmer said, oh, no, don't do that. Give it another chance, and I'll dig it. I'll aerate the roots. I'll dig up the earth so air can get into its roots, and we'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, good. But if it doesn't, then we'll cut it down. Now, the Lord Jesus was the Messiah. He had come for three years of his messianic and public ministry to the fig tree, which was the Jewish people, looking for fruit and found none on it. It was not one year of grace that was given, but 40 years, a whole generation in which the ground was dug up in those Pentecostal days and well fertilized. And when still the nation refused to bear fruit and rejected the message um, of God's Messiah, then the tree was cut down and plucked up and thrown out. But even more interesting is the record in uh, Mark's Gospel. Because we often forget 
because of the chapters and verse divisions, which we are very thankful for. Where would we be if I wanted to find, or you wanted to find, a verse in Jeremiah 45 and verse whatever it is? Wouldn't it be terrible if we didn't have a 45th chapter and a verse 17? Think of going all through the 66 chapters of Jeremiah trying to find a verse. It, uh, the fact that the monk who did it went mad, I suppose, doesn't help us very much in the matter, but we have to be very thankful that he reduced um, uh, the word of God to chapters and verses. But he does sometimes break up our overall understanding of a passage. And it is an interesting fact that in Mark's gospel, from chapter 11 to chapter 15, we have seven days in the life of the Lord Jesus. That is, one third of the whole gospel is centered in one week of the life of Jesus. And in particular, in chapter 11 and chapter 12 and chapter 13 of Mark, we have two days. And on the first day, well, it was more than that, it was the evening of the first day, Jesus went into the temple and looked around and went out because he never stayed within the old city and went out to Bethany, to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, where he stayed. The next morning, going over the brow of the Mount of Olives, somewhere probably near Bethphage, he was hungry. And he saw a fig tree. And he went over to the fig tree and he looked through the leaves for fruit. And he found none. And he pronounced words of judgment upon the, free, upon the fig tree. You know the story. Now, it has never satisfied me, the liberal view of this passage, that Jesus was a man just like you and me. And we are told by them that when a man gets hungry, he gets irritable. So when Jesus, in, a, in a, a, a hungry and famished state, found no fruit on the fig tree, in a fit of irritation, he cursed the tree. Now that is not the, the Lord I know. For one thing, I do not believe he could be anywhere near as dim-witted as that. For the record itself says clearly, it was not the season for figs. Oh, someone very clever immediately comes in on the, on the argument and says, Oh, but just wait, just wait. Don't you know that the fig tree is a very unusual fruit tree? When the fig tree puts forth its leaves, there in the very bract is a little tiny bud of the coming fruit. So when Jesus went over to the fig tree and he was looking through the leaves, he could have seen if it was going to be fruitful or not. Well, that's very, very clever. But you happen to be speaking about the Spanish fig tree. And the Spanish fig tree was unknown in the Holy Land in the time of Jesus. We have two kinds of fig trees in the Holy Land. The Spanish fig tree and our own fig tree. Uh, the Spanish fig tree, it is perfectly true, has little tiny fruit bracts that come near the leaves. And you can tell if it's going to be fruitful or not. But our own fig tree helps you in no way at all. It does not in any way give an indication as to whether it's going to bear a lot of fruit or no fruit or just a little fruit. 
So it seems quite clear to me that when Jesus went over to that fig tree and went through the motions of looking through it and found nothing in the words, he was, he was acting a parable out on the fig tree. And it is even clearer, even if it was not at that time clear to the disciples, that when the Holy Spirit had come upon them, and brought all things to their remembrance. They remembered how he had gone into the temple and looked around it, noting everything that was in it. And the next morning, going back to the temple, had seen that fig tree and said those words of it, and then had gone straight down into Jerusalem, gone into the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers, let out the doves, let free the bullocks, and said, My father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves and robbers. And with a, a, a uh, whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. Now the next morning, going again over the brow on the same path to the city, Peter suddenly saw the fig tree. And he said, look, master, rabbi. The tree which you judged yesterday, it's withered from the roots. It wasn't a blight from without to within that had destroyed it. But something had happened within the tree and it had died from its roots. And then Jesus said, have faith in God. Not at all meaning that if you have faith in God, you can kill fig trees. Which is how some people seem to understand it. My dear friend, you don't need faith to kill a fig tree. All you need to do is take a saw out and saw the thing down. It's not as if Jesus was saying, oh, yes, it's a tremendous thing, really. I mean, that's the way to get rid of unwanted fig trees. I mean, the real point was this. What he was making reference to was in instructing them, now you must understand that faith is the key to fruitfulness and fruitfulness the key to much else and unbelief is the key to barrenness which leads to judgment at that point he went into the temple and had his final confrontation with the authorities first with the Herodians who came with trick questions but were unable to trip him up. Then came the Sadducees, also with trick questions, but they were unable to trip him up. Then came the Pharisees with their trick questions, but they couldn't trip him up. And finally, you remember the scribe who seems to have been a better type than many of the others who came and said, Master, can you tell us what is the greatest law of all? And Jesus said, the, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and with all your might, and you shall love your neighbor. And the second is like to it, and you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two the whole law hangs. Then Jesus asked them a question. 
And he said, in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a stool for your feet. Of whom was he speaking? Who is the Lord and who is my Lord? And they were all silenced. Then Jesus uttered the most severe and solemn denunciation that is recorded in any place in the word of God. You all know it. It begins repeatedly with those words, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and ends with a heart-rending cry, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that stonest the prophets and kills those who are sent unto her. How often would I have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. Your house is left unto you desolate. You shall no more see me till you shall say, Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. And turning his back on the temple for the last time, he went out to what we now call the Golden Gate or what was in those days the gate beautiful. And as he went out, the, the disciples caught hold of him and said, Look at this building, Master. You inspected it the other night. Just see how magnificent it is. And Jesus said, Do you see all these stones? There will not be left one stone upon another in the day of its judgment. And going out to the gate, beautiful, they went down into the Kidron Valley, crossed the little brook, which now runs about 30, 40 feet below the surface, onto the other side, somewhere on the lower slope. The, he left eight of them in the Garden of Gethsemane. And taking the inner circle of his apostles, Andrew and Peter, and James and John, he went farther up the Mount of Olives and somewhere up higher on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the whole temple area and the whole city, he sat down and they said to him, Master, when will this temple be destroyed, as you said, and not a stone be left upon another? And this city be taken and the whole people be taken into captivity and dispersed? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And he said, take heed. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be wars and rumors of wars. See that you, be, that you are not troubled. There shall be famines, shortages, and earthquakes and pestilences, plague diseases, in many places all over the earth. They will persecute you from one place to the next. You will be brought up before magistrates and leaders and authorities. They will kill you and believe that they do a service in killing you. This gospel of the kingdom has to be preached in all nations for a testimony before the end comes. And then he said a wonderful thing. He said, this is not the end. These are the birth pangs of the coming kingdom. That, I think, is one of the most beautiful phrases that the Lord Jesus could have ever used, the labor pains. 
of the coming kingdom. He didn't say these are the awful agonizing pains that are introducing the judgment upon all the nations and which everything's going to go to pieces. He said these are the labor pains of the coming kingdom of heaven. Then he said, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to stand, then know the end has come. That's the last phase. Then he gives a few instructions and says that then the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory. And the angels of God will gather uh, the elect from the four corners of the earth. Then I imagine looking into the eyes of those four disciples that meant so much to him, from one to the other, he said, Now, from the fig tree, learn its parable. When, you, when its branches become tender, the sap comes up into its branch and it puts out leaves, you know that summer is upon you. Even so, you also, when you see all these things, know that he is nigh, even at the door. I think it is an inescapable conclusion that that fig tree that the previous morning Jesus had looked for fruit upon and had uttered words of judgment over. And that very morning, one of the four, Peter, had drawn the attention of Jesus and the apostles to it. Must have been in the minds of those four men when Jesus said, Now, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. My dear friends, I must tell you that I have the utmost sympathy with believers of former generations who have thought that the Lord was coming. Could you tell me any single part of the last 1,900 years when there have not been wars and rumors of wars and nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom? Has there been any time in the last 1,900 years when there have not been earthquakes of devastating consequence? Or famines? Or plague diseases? It is very, very easy for us to look down our long noses at the believers of previous generations in a kind of superior manner and say, well, you know, this is ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, in Martin Luther's day, they thought the Lord was coming. Apparently, that he didn't. We wouldn't have made that mistake. But just wait. Just supposing you lived through the Black Death, when two-thirds of the population of Europe died, and when war seemed to be ravaging the whole of Europe, and when even some Jews began apparently to go back to the land, don't you think you might have begun to wonder whether perhaps the Lord was coming? And that these words in Matthew 24 were being fulfilled, pestilences, war, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. After all, the only thing they didn't have in the good old days was telephone and radio. 
and all these modern technological marvels by which we know instantly when there's a civil war in the Far East or whether one nation goes against another. In the old days, there might have been a million people killed in China, but we would have never heard of it. And when we did hear of it, it would have been a year or two later. <laughs> Today, we hear in a moment. What about the great famines of China, which swept away, in some cases, 10 million people? Or the great earthquakes that there have been, in which whole cities and areas were somehow destroyed. Now, if you had been living in those times, don't you think you might have thought the Lord was coming? <laughs> I have the greatest sympathy with these people. We must ask ourselves, then, what is the sign? I say that it is perfectly correct to see these signs as signs that are going to be in great intensity and in combination with one another. But even so, may I ask how relatively we judge it? If I was living in a time of the Hundred Years' War, which ravaged the whole of Europe, and when the whole of society seemed to be upside down, and when there was resulting famine all over the place because the farmers couldn't plant the seed and so on, don't you think I could have wondered if I heard of earthquakes and a few other things, and then there came persecution as well, don't you think I might have begun to wonder, this is the thing the Lord was talking about. Here are these signs in combination with one another and in such intensity as the world has not known before. The Lord must be coming. Or take the, the First World War and the results of the First World War and the flu epidemic that followed it. You can well imagine people saying there's never been a war like this in the history of mankind. The ravages of it. Millions and millions of young men dead. Miles of graveyards. There's never been anything. The Lord must be coming. I say that there was one sign which validates all the others. It is not just a question that you've got to have all those signs in great intensity and in combination with one another. But the sign which validates all the rest is that something will happen with the Jewish people which has never happened before in 1,900 years. When that people become a nation again, and not just a nation, not in Uganda, not in South America, in Patagonia, or somewhere else, but when they come back to the national territory from which they were driven, then know that that is the validating sign which confirms all the other signs so that when you have a period in the history of mankind when you will have wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and earthquakes and famines or shortages of food of energy of basic raw materials when you have plague diseases reappearing in the earth again, and when you have persecution of believers, then know if 
the Jewish people have become a nation again with their own leadership and their own government and their own army and navy and air force, then no, it is the fig tree putting forth its leaves. Summer is upon you. When you see this, know that he is nigh, even at the door. Now I'm getting a bit warm, so I'm going to take this jacket off. Sorry for the videotape. I can only get it off. Now, I believe that Israel is that side. And that leads me to say something else. I believe that by, by watching what is happening to the Jewish people and to Israel, we know where we are in the program of God and in the divine economy. There are a number of milestones which we have passed. And we have passed them in, the in our generation. And the first and clearest by which we know so much else is on the 14th of May, 1948. At that time, suddenly, Israel was born as a sovereign state amongst the states of the world. The old fig tree, which Jesus had said would be judged and which would die from the roots, would still be there at the end of the age in its own national soil and putting forth leaves again. People often ask me about the little word, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And of course the liberal view of this is that Jesus was limited in his knowledge. He actually, being a man, had the limited knowledge of a man, and he believed that he was coming back in the generation, in that generation, and that those that were there would actually see him return. I cannot accept that. If the Lord Jesus was so wrong on as important a matter as his second coming, what else could he be wrong on? But he did use the word, this generation shall not pass away. So then other believers have come up, real believers, have come up with what I always feel often is a theory of adjustment. They say, oh, no, 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 you've got it wrong. He meant that generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Well, why didn't he say that generation? The generation that sees the fig tree put forth its leaves, sees the Jewish people become a state, will not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Now, my friends, I believe that if the Lord Jesus had wanted to, he could have said, that generation shall not pass away, and that would have cleared the whole problem up for us. You could say that in Greek. But he didn't. He said, this generation shall not pass away. Now, if what some believe is true, it means that from 1948 we have a generation and the Lord should be back within it. That means we have a biblical generation of 40 years and by the year 1988 Jesus should be back. But we have done something. We have fixed a date. 
And the one thing the Lord Jesus says again and again and again and again is no one knows the time. Now some very clever people will say, Ah, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. He said no one knows the day nor the hour. Well, I've had this said to me, so I know what I'm talking about on this matter. The day or the hour, my dear friend, don't quibble. The Lord said two or three times, not only you won't know the day or the hour, but he said you won't know the time. But if we have a generation from 48, we know the time. Sometime between now and 1988, he's coming. Well, thank God if he does. That's all I can say. But... I must say I have a serious question because every single year that now passes means that we can be clearer about the year that he's coming. That is why I have had such an interest in the word itself which comes from a Greek word to beget or begetting, a begetting, and therefore means a family, kith and kin, those born of the same stock, of the same parents, of the same root, out of the same uh, people, um, or those born at the same time, a generation. And that is why now in your New American Standard Bible and in the New International Version, for the first time officially, in the margin, you have the alternative, this race shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. And that seems to me to clear up a large amount of this problem, if not the whole thing. Because what the Lord Jesus was saying, don't be fooled by the fig tree. There's going to come a day in the lifetime of all of you when this temple is going to be destroyed and this city is going to be broken down and this nation is going to be taken captive and they're going to be dispersed into all the nations of the earth. Do not think that because the Jewish people lose their national territory and their national government and their national institutions and they lose their their spiritual status with God, that God has finished with them. At the end of the age, that old fig tree which was judged and died and plucked up from its soil will be back in its own soil, not only planted, but full of life putting forth leaves with the promise of fruit to come. Now, my friends, the miracle happened on the 14th of May, 1948. And some people tell me that that was a political accident. Well, all I can say is it was some political accident. In Isaiah 66 and verse 8, the uh, prophet Isaiah says, Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now I am told by some that this has been fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, when the church, which is called and described by the Apostle Peter in his first letter, as a nation, a holy nation, was brought forth at once. I have no problem about that. It is perfectly true that the church was born on the day of Pentecost. It was born by the mighty generating power of the person of the Holy Spirit through the magnificent finished work 
of the Messiah, Jesus. I have no problems about this. But what I want to say is this. The Holy Spirit has such wisdom when he gives these scriptures which can be spiritualized with such great value because he puts into the very prophecy certain words which have absolutely no meaning unless it is also taken literally. Have you noticed this? Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Now I find that very interesting. A land. A land. If we were to put it in colloquial uh, modern English, we would say, shall a country be born in one day? Now nowhere is the church described in the New Testament as a land. Nowhere is it described as a country. Nowhere is it described as a state. It is described as a nation. But it is not described as a state or a country. So the Holy Spirit is as if he is saying to the prophet Isaiah, don't just only accept the spiritual fulfillment of this verse. There's going to be a literal fulfillment in the physical covenant people. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Or a nation brought forth at once? On the 14th of May, 1948, against overwhelming odds, Israel was born as a sovereign country amongst the other countries of the world. All the political experts of the world were unanimous in their verdict. She would never survive the enormous, ferocious onslaught of five fully armed Arab neighbors. But she did. She not only survived, she triumphed. And she came out with more territory at the end of that. Although she was faced by a million men in arm, under arms. And what does it mean? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Oh, they tell me this is a reference to the Lord Jesus. What an extraordinary exegesis. Where is the Lord Jesus ever called Zion? I do not find it. I do find a prophecy at least in one place in Isaiah 62 where the Messiah says, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her light goes forth as a lamp that burneth and her salvation to the ends of the earth. It is the Messiah who speaks of Zion. Oh, someone clever comes and says, well, what about the 120 in the upper room? Weren't they Zion traveling? Well, I don't really note that they were traveling. I don't think anybody can travel until the Holy Spirit's come upon them. You can pray petitions, but I have never known anybody who's become an intercessor unless the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them and possessed them and filled them. It is a necessity for real intercession. I only know this, that it was the travail of the Lord Jesus that brought forth the church on the day of Pentecost. But I also know that for 1,800 years, the Jewish people were taught passively to accept the fate that had befallen them from the hands of God. 
They were taught not to be active, not to resist, not to rebel, not to murmur if they were treated unjustly, if their reputation was torn away from them, if their livelihood was torn away from them, if they were hounded from pillar to post, if they were killed or maimed or injured, they were to accept it and thank God because it was the hand of God in judgment upon them for their transgression. The Jewish people, in fact, did more than that. They were taught to help the hand of God and to become as singularly unattractive as it was possible to be. To dress in black, to look strange, to have a stooped shoulder, to have that broken look in the eye which you associate with past jewelry. It was not until the end of the last century that suddenly something happened amongst Jews and in Jewry which brought an altogether new spirit. I cannot go into that. I've written quite a bit about it. But let me just simply say this, that when Theodor Herzl called together the first great gathering of Jewish leaders representing every single segment and aspect of Jewish life, in the Stadt Casino in Basel, in Switzerland, in September of 1897, he did not realize that it was the first time Jewish leaders representing the whole of Jewry had met together since the Sanhedrin was disbanded in AD 70. On that opening session, he, in that opening session, Theodor Herzl stood up and said, we are here to lay the cornerstone of a structure that will house the Jewish nation. They chose a national anthem, and they chose a national flag, but they had no national government, and they had no national territory. That night, writing in his diary, Theodor Herzl wrote the prophetic words, this day, I have founded the Jewish state. If I was to say it out loud, it would be treated with howls of laughter and derision by the whole world. But in five years, perhaps, and certainly within 50, the whole world will know. Those 50 years were to be the most turbulent and traumatic years of the whole of the long-blooded, tear-stained history of the Jewish people. But Zion travailed. And as soon as she travailed, what never happened in 1,800 years, within 50 years, had happened. Israel was born on the 14th of May, 1948. It had happened. What began with the adoption of a national anthem and a national flag without a national government, without a national entity, without a national territory, became a reality in 50 years for in November of 1947, the United Nations uh, Congress, by a two-thirds majority vote, recognized the right of the Jewish people 
to be a sovereign nation and state amongst the other sovereign nations and states of the world. It had happened. Now, those of you who are Bible students, you know full well what the year 50 is. The year 50 is the Jubilee year. And what is the significance of the Jubilee year? It is that all territory and possessions return to their rightful owner. What had begun as an aspiration and an ideal in the adoption of a national anthem and flag became a reality 50 years later. Now by this milestone spiritually, we know where we are in the divine program. Something has happened in the Jewish people that has never happened in 1,900 years. They have never before in those years become a nation, a state, a country with its own territory, with its own capital, with its own government, with its own defense forces, with its own national institutions. It has happened in the lifetime of this generation. Now, it is an amazing thing to me that people don't get all terribly excited. I know that we're accused sometimes that some Christians do get so excited, go overboard on this whole thing. Well, it's something to go overboard on in some way. I mean, when things have been predicted for thousands of years and have never come to pass, and the prophets have died in faith not seeing them, isn't it something to be excited about that you and I have lived through these days? We've actually seen it with our own eyes. A milestone. If this is a coincidence, it is a, a remarkable coincidence. If this is a political swindle, it's some swindle politically. But we have another milestone. We find in the words of our Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 21 and verse 24. And these are his words. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, that is the Jewish people, and shall be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, the second milestone we passed on the 7th of, May, of, 7th of June, 1967, when uh, the neighbors around Israel threatened to invade Israel and to make the massacres of Genghis Khan pale into insignificance beside the massacre that they were going to perpetrate upon the Jewish people. It seemed as if it was the end for Israel. But in a lightning move, within the first few hours of the 5th of June, the Israeli Defense Force put, uh, the Air Force put out of action the whole Arab Air Forces of all the surrounding countries. And then when Syria attacked, and Jordan attacked, and Egypt attacked, Israel fought them back. And on the 6th of June, she surrounded the whole old city of Jerusalem. And on the 7th of June, they broke in through St. Stephen's Gate. And rushing as far as they could, they came to the Western Wall. And the old city was reunited. 
People said it was a coincidence because many said it would never happen. <laughs> but just like the 14th of May 1948 is now a fact, so now today what has happened with Jerusalem is a fact. Is it not an amazing thing that 100 years ago, who could have thought of a Jewish state with a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister? Who could have thought of it 40 years ago? We would have been laughed to scorn by some people if we'd said there will come a day when there will be a Jewish president and a Jewish prime minister and a Jewish army and a navy and an air force, which will be one of the strongest in the world community. We would have been laughed to scorn. Why two-thirds of European and Russian Jewry were being liquidated in the Nazi concentration camps of Europe? If I had said this state of Israel will come to the center of the world platform and will be debated day and night by the nations of the world, there'll be forever passing resolutions on Israel. You'll turn on the radio, it'll be Israel, 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 Jerusalem, this, Jerusalem, that. You'll turn on television and you'll see Israel this, Israel that. You'll open your newspaper, Israel this. People will say, don't be so stupid. Do you mean to say that Israel is going to be a superpower? We never said that. God's word said that when Israel will be born again, she will occupy the central place in the world platform till the Messiah comes. And now today, we all know it. But we've become so used to it, we don't see it as a miracle. Every time we hear the word Israel, we say, that's a miracle. Forty years ago, there was no Israel. And there was no possibility of an Israel. Today, Israel is very much a fact of world history. But what about Jerusalem? This taking of Jerusalem and this recognition of Jerusalem is referred to by the Lord Jesus. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Do you mean to tell me then that the fact that Jerusalem has come under sovereign Jewish government means that the times of the Gentiles are over? I think so. What else can it mean? Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles are not the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles refers to the number of the elect from amongst the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles refers to a whole phase of human history. It's come to an end and you've lived through it. That phase which began with the great Babylonian Empire 2,500 or more years ago has come to an end in our generation. I find this so amazing, so exciting, so thrilling. In, on December the 9th, 1917, a remarkable thing happened in Jerusalem. General Edmund Allenby, the leader of the Allied forces, dismounted near Newgate and taking his hat off and his gloves off, he walked bare-headed bare and ungloved 
into the city of Jerusalem, loudly saying so that all could hear on all sides, I will not ride gloved and hatted into the city of my God and Savior. Striding through the Jaffa Gate, he went to the little platform that many of you will know, will know if you've been to Jerusalem on the eastern side of the citadel of David and there received the surrender of the city from the Ottoman Turkish authorities. 400 years of one of the greatest empires in world history had come to an end. And Jerusalem, which had been under Islamic control for more than six centuries, had finally surrendered to a Christian power. Can you imagine the excitement in all the crowds that were on the pavements, a large number of whom were Jewish? It is a mistaken idea that it has been the wicked Jews who have somehow or other swindled the Arabs out of their majority status in the city of Jerusalem. Since the year 1840, there has been a Jewish majority in Jerusalem. And in the year 1970, on all those crowded pavements, there were thousands upon thousands of Oriental Jews. And the excitement that went through them was electric. Why? Because by coincidence, it happened to be the first day of Hanukkah. The day that Jerusalem was surrendered out of Islamic control happened to be the first day of the Jewish festival of freedom, Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the festival in which all Jews celebrate that glorious deliverance in the year 165 from the original Antichrist, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. On that very day, the city was taken by the Jewish Maccabees. And it has been celebrated ever since in an eight-day festival, sometimes called the Festival of Lights, sometimes called the Festival of Freedom. Hanukkah! Do you think it was coincidence that Jerusalem was surrendered on the first day of Hanukkah, on December the 9th of 1917? Just a month before, in November of 1917, there had been a declaration made by the superpower of the day, Britain. And it has come to be called the Balfour Declaration. His Majesty's government view with favor the setting up of a, ho of a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Fifty years later, on June the 7th, 1967, in a lightning move on the part of the Israel Defense Forces, they reunited that Jerusalem to become, by act of Knesset, in words that have never before been used in any act of parliament in world history, Jerusalem, the eternal and indivisible capital of Israel and the Jewish people. The times of the Gentiles are over. Fifty years. What is fifty years? Jubilee. Is it just fanciful? Is it another coincidence? My dear friends, Jewish history has been filled with these coincidences. 
You know, on the very day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the house of God, on the night of Av, in 587, on the same day, the ninth of Av, in A.D. 70, Titus destroyed the city. Coincidence? Jesus died as the Lamb of God at the very moment in the year A.D. 30 when the lambs, the Passover lambs, were being sacrificed. Coincidence. The year of Jubilee, in which all territory and possessions returns to its rightful owners, what had begun in the 9th of December, 1917, on June the 7th of 1967, was fulfilled and realized. Another milestone's been passed. People said, where are we? Have we gone back to the times of the Jews? I'm not at all sure about that. Well, then they said, well, what do you call the times we've entered? They're not the times of the Gentiles. I say, well, I like most of all the rabbinic phrase. Some people call it the time of the end. Some people call it the latter days. Some people call it the last days. But I like most of all the rabbinic term, the threshold of the Messiah. We have passed into that time, whether it's a century, whether it's two centuries, or whether it's a few years, that we can describe as the threshold of the Messiah. Now, my dear friend, if that's the case, we're going to see some very exciting things in the days that lie ahead. We're going to see a worldwide shaking and upheaval such as the world has never before seen. It will be political, moral, religious, economic, Everything will be shaken. Don't think Marxism will not be shaken. It will be shaken to pieces in this shaking. Don't think the Islamic revolution will not be shaken. It will be shaken to pieces in this shaking. God will shake to pieces all that can be shaken so that 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 cannot be shaken may remain. We are in a period of time when we shall see Israel increasingly isolated in the community of nations and the venom of, of uh, a secular humanism being drawn out in its full strength against what is called the Judeo-Christian ethic and the Judeo-Christian heritage. We have passed a milestone. How exciting. A second milestone. From the fig tree, learn its parable. When her branches become tender and she puts forth leaves, you know of yourselves that summer is nigh. Even so ye also, when you see all these things, know ye that he is nigh, even at the door. But my dear friends, I believe we have passed the third milestone and upon this one I beg your, uh, 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 what shall we say, your kindness because I don't want to be dogmatic. But since I believe the times of the Gentiles are over, I believe that anything that happens in Jewish history of, uh, on any particular holy day has very great significance. 
And I believe that that war that began on the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, on the 6th of October, 1973, was another milestone that we have passed. I felt at the time that somehow or other the world would never be the same again. We had passed irrevocably into another phase in world history. I went everywhere telling people it will never be the same again, but people didn't all take it uh, too quickly or easily because they wondered how it could be the same, not be the same again. What has so happened about a little local Middle East skirmish? How could that change the world? But all the energy crises, all the inflationary spiral, the enormous growth of international terrorism and lawlessness. It's all been speeding up since 1973, so that it, the, the pre-73 years are almost unrecognizable now. We are so hardened to men and women being gunned down on our streets that we hardly turn a hair. Prime Ministers can be captured, or ex-Prime Ministers, and murdered in cold blood. As in Italy. And we don't tear, turn a hair. We're so used to it now. I have said again and again that we are in the run-up to a big conflict. I have not changed my view in this matter. Now, I've already said something this morning about this. But you can understand the excitement that there has been in Jewish circles on this matter, and this needs to be treated with extreme caution. You can understand the excitement in Jewish circles, because you know, most of you, that we don't use Roman letters or Arabic letters in Hebrew for numbers. We use Hebrew letters in Old Hebrew. So every now and again, a, 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 a year of history spells out a word in the Jewish year that covers the years 1938-39. It spelt out a word. That word was Tirza, Mada. And the rabbis throughout Europe changed the words, as they are permitted to do. And instead of calling it Tirza, they changed it round to a word which means faith. But they did not know what they had done. For that year ushered in the years of the Holocaust, in which millions of Jews went into shower rooms to bathe and were murdered in cold blood. Can you understand the fear and the shock, excitement in the religious communities in Jerusalem that the year that covers the year 1983-84 in the Jewish reckoning, which begins, of course, in September next year, also spells out a word, tishmat, exterminate. The Minister of Religious Affairs is taking it so seriously that in the week that I left Jerusalem, he had issued a regulation, a decree from the Ministry of Education and Religious Affairs that the word was to be changed. Instead of tishmat, it should be shadmat. 
which means fields or birds. I can't help wondering whether in some way this prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which is all to do with the extermination of a nation, God says, I'll put a hook through your jaws, O Gog and Magog, and I will turn you and drag you down to the mountains of Israel, and I will give your flesh to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the air. Well, I don't know. We have to wait and see. That's why it's please be kind and use extreme caution. I don't want you running all over the place, especially on videotape, saying, he said, 1983-84 was the end. He never said anything of the kind. What he said was this, 1938-39 was certainly very interesting, since it spelt out a word. And there is a tremendous amount of excitement in the religious communities in Jerusalem and elsewhere over the year 1983-84. We don't know what it holds, but it's sufficiently horrifying for the Minister of Education and Religious Affairs to change the word. To pacify the people. My friends, it's time to wake up. It is time to wake up. No more shilly-shallying. No more playing at churches. No more just sort of dancing around on the circumference of things. It is time to wake up. The most marvelous thing about the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that it will end in two most glorious things. The Jewish people will be gathered back to their own land in its entirety. And the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them with the most glorious results for the whole redeemed community. If the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what will the receiving of them be but life from the dead? And doesn't the church need just that kind of resurrection, life, and power to carry her through the last phase of world history? Could there be anything more wonderful for the comfort and the encouragement of all of us who know the Lord and love the Lord than to see finally the veil that was on the Jewish heart taken away and the Jewish people are claiming Jesus as the Messiah? That will surely bring a power and an energy direct from the throne of God into the whole redeemed community. The whole true church of God. It's worth, my friends, waking up for. It's worth trusting for. It's worth getting into the battle of intercession and prayer that it might be realized. It's worth laying down our lives. People say to me that they sometimes they feel that this whole thing of Israel is a diversionary tactic of the enemy taking us away from the building of the church and the preparation of the bride. I do not see it as such. I know we've got a great collection of eccentrics and nutcases who's, who are focused upon this whole matter of Israel. But that doesn't mean to say that the truth itself is a lie. Maybe it's the enemy's way of confusing the whole issue. But my friends, 
I cannot help but feel that there is a challenge that comes to us all. That is the early church, which in its entirety was Jewish. All its twelve apostles were Jewish. All the spearheading of its evangelistic efforts and teaching ministry in the early years was Jewish. Stephen, Apollos, Philip, they were all Jewish. Every book in our New Testament, bar Luke and Acts, written by one hand, is written by a Jew. The whole early church till that drawing room meeting in Caesarea was a Messianic Jewish community. These people challenged by the risen Messiah whose body itself was Jewish. To go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Lay down their lives. And became the offscouring of their own people. So that the Gentiles who were beyond the pale. Unclean. Heathen. Rejected. Blind. In darkness might come to know the salvation of God and become part of the family of God. Is it too much to us that in the last phase of human history, God might be calling Gentile believers, members of the same body, as those Jewish believers originally. Members of the same household, of the same family. Is it too much to ask or believe that God might be asking Gentile believers, Christians with Gentile backgrounds, to lay down their lives? That the natural branches might be grafted back into their own olive tree? We can't expect everyone to go and live in Jerusalem, nor do we want it. We don't want you all to suddenly become strange and have kosher kitchens. <laughs> or even light the Sabbath candles. I mean, if you want to, you can do it. But I, I, I don't see it as necessary. It may even be a hindrance. But what I do believe is this. The heart of the matter is not just to be Jewish on the periphery. The heart of the matter is that God calls upon you to lay down your lives in prayer, in intercession, in giving, in love, in many other ways that those natural branches may be grafted back into their own olive tree. We are accused sometimes of preaching another gospel. As if we want to make Jew, all Christians Jews. My dear friend, we can't make you more Jewish than God has made you. If you're circumcised in the heart, you're a true Jew. If you're born of God, you're a member of the partaker of the commonwealth of Israel. 
If you have been saved by the grace of God, you are a member of the household of faith. We cannot make you less than God has made you, nor more than God has made you. But is it too much to ask that into your heart might come a burden of pain and travail that will not find its relief until the veil is taken away from the Jewish heart. My dear friends, God forbid that what I've said today should just become some fascinating and ex exciting catalogue of dates and battles and events that lie ahead. What God is calling for are men and women who will get involved in their day and generation in what he is seeking to do, both in the church of God and in the Jewish people. May God give you illumination and revelation and understanding in this vital and strategic matter. May he involve you in this thing. After all, my dear friends, there's going to come a day when that Messiah, Jesus, will come again. And those pierced feet will, will stand again upon the dust of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. He will come back to the capital of a nation that in between his first coming and going and his final return, will have been dispersed to the ends of the earth and regathered, who were dispersed because of unbelief and disobedience, but who, by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, will have been melted into a devotion and love for his person that will wrench out from their heart those glorious words, blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord.